You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio Station site. This morning, we have got a very special show for everyone. Uh, we're going to have Daryl Poulis from Atlanta. And this is one of those shows that's being directed direct from the station, which is... Uh, a little novel for me calling in <laughs> but one of the reasons that we're doing this joint show is uh, because I'm going to be retiring from the host and Daryl is going to be taking over so I thought it would be a good idea to do a joint show um, and introduce everyone to Daryl so Daryl why don't we start with a little about your background in gardening and what you do well as far as gardening is concerned I started gardening before I was two, I think. Um, my dad had a little step stool, and I would take it out to the garden, and I would talk. I would talk to the flowers. And my mother encouraged my gardening, and so did my grandmother. So I've been gardening for more than 60 years, and I cannot imagine life not gardening, and especially growing vegetables and fruits. Um, I think it's, it's a vital part of my life. Um, you know, and, and I, I think when, when you start kind of that, that young, <laughs> wow, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I was always around gardens. Uh, my, my dad used to garden, and everybody in England, of course, has gardens. Sure. But, uh, but I don't think I actually started growing anything specific. I think we, we moved to um, Warwick in England, where the castle is and all that stuff. Um, and that was the first time, I think, that I actually internalized that there were more than one kind of mint, because we'd always had mint in the backyard for making mint sauce and things like that. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly I was faced with uh, basically a, a flower garden, but it had... Um, I think it had spearmint and peppermint and apple mint in it. And that was the first time that I really took notice, I think, of what was growing in the garden and how different things can, can taste, even though they're the same um, basic plant. Um, so that, that was my, I think that was my first step. But gosh, I was well over two. I think I was out of college at the time. And, and what, what did you say when you first came across apple mint? I remember that experience myself. I was working in a little nursery, and they had 15 different kinds of mint, I think, chocolate mint and apple mint and, and as you say, peppermint and spearmint. And I came across the apple mint, and I could not believe that there was a mint that actually tasted like apple. And it's a very different sort of mint, too, because it's kind of fuzzy-leafed. Yeah, it's not something that I would want to eat particularly, but it's uh, it was an experience, as he say. Yeah. One of the things that I like to do especially is to take children or adults out to a nursery or a garden center or uh, someone's garden that has a lot of different herbs and just let them sit there and smell the herbs on a warm, sunny day and then touch the herbs and get close enough, enough to smell them and to taste them and... I love to watch how people react when they get have that experience. Oh, yes, particularly preschoolers. You know, you can take a little preschooler 
up to a, you grab them by the hand and take them up and they can touch and they can feel and they can smell all the different sorts. So I, I think for kids particularly, you know, that, that's such a vital part of, of experience it. Um, so I, I used to do, do that all, all the time with kids in the in the backyard. Uh, mine seemed to be allergic to the idea of being out, out there for anything like that. <laughs> but uh, but I, I used to say actually that uh, herb gardeners were the only sort of gar- gardeners that actually enjoyed weeding because as you could sort of weed around the lavender or the basil or, or the artemisias, you're getting that aromatherapeutical thing from them as you go along. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're, you're absolutely right. You, you do get all the senses touched when you do that. I like to think of herbs as the gateway drug into gardening for, for people that like to cook, especially. And if they've, once they have, get the taste of their own fresh herbs, then they start thinking about other things that they can grow too. Once, once you get them hooked in by that method, you've got them for life. Oh, yes. Um, and, of course, the, the advantage with, um, with herbs, uh, particularly the culinary herbs, and, and, you, and you know, with, that's even without looking at the catalogues where you can get um, a gazillion basils and thymes and mint, you know, I mean, that gets confusing. But just get the basic ones that you like, like a lemon thyme and a mother of thyme or French thyme. I always say keep them by the backyard, back door. Because one of the worst things out, I mean, you can do it with a veg, you can get away with a vegetable garden, but if you're halfway through cooking and you suddenly want to add maybe a bit of um, lemon thyme in there, you really don't want to be putting the galoshes on and the umbrella, which is what I had to do yesterday to go and harvest some beans. You wouldn't do that for just getting a couple of sprigs of of, uh, thyme or mint. So I always say you should keep them right by the back door, if necessary, in a container on the deck or something, so that you use them. I agree with you because you use them more. My my favorite thing is running out for a little bit of dill or a little bit of parsley, you know, when I'm in the middle of fixing dinner, as you said. And if it's far away, I'm more inclined to just say, yeah, nah, it really doesn't need it, or or reach for the dry stuff up in the cabinet. And you know that the dry doesn't taste anything like the fresh herb. Oh, absolutely. And you know, when you've got fresh herbs out outside, you know, it's it's just so. Um, I think it's essential for cooking. It gives that extra depth to a, a meal. Um, and, and right now, um, I don't know what uh, you're harvesting down there, but I seem to have rather overdone planting the um, the summer squash. And, and I've got green ones and black ones and uh, yellow ones out there. Now, they, they can be incredibly boring <laughs> if they've got something sprinkled on them. Um, you want to be able to keep the flavor, but uh, uh, and I think a little bit of thyme on top of it or, or maybe chives would kind of increase the flavor without losing the flavor of those individual um, squashes. I like to start with squashes. The very first squash harvest of the season is usually just plain with a little bit of butter, olive oil, and then after a while it's butter, olive oil, onion in the squash and then by about the fourth or fifth meal I'm throwing everything I can in there Uh, run out to the garden get some basil especially or some oregano and throw that in there and then add in the tomatoes too because so much squash can can get to be kind of a bore but there is always a cure for that and that's the squash vine borer and the squash vine borer has already found the stems of my squashes so one plant is gone so it's, the harvest will be slowing down now. And we have those darn squash beetles back again. Actually, I, I had that last year, but I think the plants were quite weak because we were surrounded by trees, and they really weren't getting enough sun. And although no, no vegetable has been planted in this garden probably for the last 30 years, 
um, the squash miners and whatever just found it instantly. Maybe neighbours are growing it. I don't know. But I actually was, I've been sending some into my husband's work to, <laughs> this morning. You know, he's looking at me as if to say, if you produce squash, squash on the table again tonight, <laughs> they're going to go for, for the fast food option. Um, and I'm thinking of, of different things to do. But, I mean, I, I, we go to a couple of the fast food restaurants, kind of the middle restaurants, kind of like the... Um, and TGI Fridays, that type of thing. And, you know, some of them actually do produce, um, they have squash on the menu as a, a side dish. And, you know, they, they, I think it's become almost a mainstream um, idea. So, you know, say I, I kind of overdid it a bit. Um, so I'm beginning to wonder if I need the squash borer back. <laughs> do, you, do you not have a, a food bank near you? We have a food bank. It's there is an outfit called No Longer Bound, and it's a regeneration place home for uh, alcoholics and drug addicts. And they welcome fresh food. And there are fresh food. There are food banks all over the area here that are very happy to have fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. So if yeah. your if your coworkers, your husband's coworkers, are getting a little bit bored with it, and you're getting bored with it, don't forget the don't forget the food banks. Yes, and, and that actually is a very good point um, because I, I work in a community garden which is run by the master gardeners rather than the community itself, and all the produce from that gets um, sent to um, a food bank. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm a bit um, lackadaisical maybe about sending some of my stuff down there. <laughs> I really ought to, um, you know, pop pop down there and just add mine and just keep the two separate because we record the um, the amount of. Um, vegetables that we donate to the food food bank, but uh, but on Monday we had I think it was five pound of cabbage that was just three heads, but you know <laughs> cabbage are heavy. Uh, we had four pound of blueberries. We had That's two a good haul. Yeah, two pound of onions. Um, I think there was something else. Um, but yeah, I mean, it came to about ten pounds altogether, um, and you know that's a, the blueberries are still going off strong. Um, and I, I was on my own in that particular section, and I was, I was picking blueberries, and I thought that, that blueberry bush, there's an awful lot of red ones. You know, why is that one not getting the sun? And then I noticed there was one that was definitely red. It looked slightly different, and I squished it a, a little bit, and it was a ripe blueberry. And somebody has managed to find one red blueberry plant in among these 60-odd blueberries. And I'm not sure why nobody's noticed it before, but uh, but it's a definitely a red blueberry. I don't know whether it's pink champagne or what, but uh, very nice. How does it taste? Very good. <laughs> really? I, you know, I kind of thought that the pink blueberries that they've been coming on the market were just there for a novelty. And I wasn't, I didn't get a sample plant to try. And so I've been reluctant to actually go and buy one. I did buy a bunch more blueberries last year, though. I'm a blueberry nut. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's, um, so nobody seemed, when I mentioned it to the other co-people co that were in the garden, I, I said, yeah. Where did this one come from? And nobody seems to know anything about it. And it's certainly not its first year. So I don't know if people just didn't realize it was red blueberries and they were just ignoring it or what. But uh, but it was a very good one. And when I'm going to try and track down who put it in there and, uh, you know, where they, where they what the name is. Because it, it's, it's a very good one. Um, and one I would actually quite like to have in my, my garden. Maybe you can propagate it for yourself. 
Well, I might be able to. <laughs> That's another thing I like to do. I like to stick cuttings, and my mother was famous for that. She would, she at one point, when we moved her down from uh, New Jersey to Georgia, we had over 300 plants to move. 300 African violets. And that's after she had sold quite a number of them. Every time a leaf would break off, she would stick it in the ground. If she, if uh, something broke off a piece of thyme, if she broke, cut off more than she really needed for the meal, she'd stick that in dirt and it would grow too. Tomato plants, anything that, anything that she turned her hand to, uh, it would grow. So, you, you can give that a try. Yeah, I, I, might, I might give give that a try. Although I, th- I think with a lot of those woody plants, layering them is maybe um, a little better. Um, so, so I may may try try that. And, and if I, you know, somebody might actually know um, where it came from, and, and be able to, I might be able to purchase them. They might propagate it out in the field because we have a shrub area too. And I think they have some blueberries out there. So, it just takes a little bit of. Um, I need to do a little bit of research. But you know, when the storms coming over and it. Muggy as heck. <laughs> I remember. You know, when we moved to Georgia, I was thinking, well, it's going to be really worse than New Jersey. But I was very pleasantly surprised to find out that it isn't. New Jersey probably um, is the most humid and nasty place I've ever lived. Oh, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> but really, here in Georgia, you have all the... All the um, advantages of having the mountains and the ocean and where I live at least I'm high enough at elevation that we usually get some cool down at night and in New Jersey most of the state is only at at about uh, 50 feet I think until you get to the western mountains and so there's really no change in temperature at, at night when it's humid. Yeah, um, but cer- certainly, I mean, I know that so-called polar vort- vortex has, has given very cool temperatures in the Midwest. Over on this side, I, I, I think we're going to be at a high of low 70s, which isn't too bad and actually is quite nice. We'll talk uh, about the weather right after this break. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, weather is so important, I think, to... Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at America's Homegrown Veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on americaswebradio.com webpages. You can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitcher. And this morning is a special show with Daryl Poulis from Atlanta, who's going to be taking over hosting this show as of next week. So this is a special show to get to know Daryl a little bit, um, and, and I guess to get to know me a little bit. Um, so, um, Daryl, we ended the last one uh, talking a little bit about humidity, um, and Georgia is... is a slightly different well when we were in georgia and i started this show what four and a half five years ago uh, we were in the middle of a drought do you still get summer droughts a lot uh, and very dry conditions we had um two years ago we had torrential rains we had torrential rains last year we had a really wet spring now it's pretty typical dry as a bone um we, you know, Georgia very often will have, we get a lot of rain in the summertime normally, but it also, but it all comes at once. We'll have three or four dry weeks and then pouring rain, and that usually that'll catch up. What didn't happen during the drought years when you were here was that we never caught up on that rain. We didn't have the afternoon thunderstorms that are so typical here. Yeah. So, and, and in fact, there was no snow over the, over the first two winters either. Well, for which I'm very thankful. Because when I first moved to Georgia, I was here for the very first snow jam in 81, and or, or 82, I guess it was, January 82. And I was working over all the way on the other side of the city. And that was not a whole lot of fun. So you, you, got, you, got, you got it pretty well that, that time, I think, when you moved here. We were talking about weather, and one of the things that's really important to, for gardeners to know is how weather is affecting their crops. And how you mentioned the insects that they squash vine borers haven't found you. Did you know that they don't usually overwinter in, in a lot of places, and they have to fly up from the south? There are other bugs too, like um, corn earworms, that come up from the south. They're they're blown up from Florida and go up to the northern states. So if you live up north, you get a little bit longer break than we do if you're down in the south. I didn't know that. Um, so, so obviously, um, you know, I mean, I think climate, and, and I know cer- certainly here, um, I call this the magic climate because we get cold enough in the winter and sufficiently cold that we can grow uh, rhubarb and French tarragon and things like that that need that, that winter temperature. But we can also grow the crepe myrtle and gardenia which need the warmth so to me this is a magic little thing because you can't grow french tarragon <laughs> no i can't the best we can do is mexican tarragon we can't yeah. do can't grow the french and yeah. in as often as my poor sister-in-law has tried she has not been successful in growing rhubarb here either she's even gone to the stage of putting ice on it in the winter time trying to keep it cool and it just you know it just peters out it's just so puny so yeah. if you're a rhubarb lover you definitely need to be up north someplace where it's a little colder yeah and, and of course li- lilac as well um, is very much a, a northern plant although when um i think a few years ago we did um we took the show on the road to roswell and uh, there was a gentleman there that i was doing the show with and he got a big lilac bloom and he said, I bet you can't guess where this came from. And I smelled it, and it was a real lilac. And I said, 
Hmm. He said, it's from my backyard in Stone, Stone Mountain. And apparently when he'd moved to Stone Mountain from somewhere about 30 years ago, not knowing any better, he wanted a lilac, so he mail-ordered a lilac, stuck it in the ground, and darn it, it, it bloomed. And it was 30 years old and a mature lilac bush, um, which just goes, goes to prove that um, plants don't read our books. Plants definitely don't read the books. But you know what? For those that are in the South, in Georgia, um, there is a trick to growing lilacs, and it's probably why he can get away with it in Stone Mountain, because the area around Stone Mountain has a lot of limestone, pockets of limestone. And I discovered early on, an old farmer told me, he said, if you want to grow them lilacs, you got to put wood ash on them. So I got wood. I had, my parents had wanted the lilac from home and after they dad got transferred down to georgia i dug up a slip of a lilac from one of my mother's bushes and brought it home down here for her and planted it and it didn't do anything it didn't do anything and finally i was at the farmer's market and the farmer told me exactly what to do so we got wood ash out of their fireplace and put it around and they like the extra potassium and they like the higher ph so, oh. now you know another secret. If if you ever get transferred back to this area, you can. Yeah. That's a, that's another thing that you can do. Yeah, um, obviously the lilacs down down there like that. Um, I mean, mine's just a, a regular lilac bush. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the pH here is, but it's it's just below. Um, I think it's around six eight for for the area. But actually, for the first time, um, having lived in on Georgia clay and Midwest clay. I'm, I'm on basically a beach. Um, so you are, and, and that area of New Jersey, if my memory serves, also has a lot of potassium in the soil, which is one of the reasons why you can grow such great tomatoes in in New Jersey. Yeah, um, but there's, obviously um, there's not a lot of drain, well, it's too drained. Um, so, I mean, uh, so I've got raised beds, and actually I filled them with um, a compost that came from horses the horse farm or something and I have got the most thriving garden this year it, it's just fabulous um, the um, the squashes have got enormous leaves to them um, the asparagus is looking healthy but I didn't harvest it um, the green bees and, and green beans and peas are, are both great they've done fabulous this year so um you know, and now, now I'm not having to water because of all the rain. Um, but one of the thing, things I think you gardeners need to observe is, you know, you, you get the city um, that is doing, um, you know, they do the rate, the, they give the weather and all, all that with the mid temperatures and all that. You need to figure out when they say you're going to get 32 degrees, what's your backyard going to do? And that can be very different by three or four degrees, depending on where you are and where they're recording their uh, temperature. You can indeed. And one of the things that I'm very fond of doing is looking at Weather Underground. A lot of people know about the Weather Channel, but they don't know about Weather Underground. And Weather Underground, among other things, uh, and doing some fantastic forecasting, they also have people with personal weather stations. So, you you know, the people that are weather nuts like I am, you can go and look on their, and, and look and see what their actual weather is. So I found a couple of gardens uh, that have weather, personal weather stations, and they're very close to me. 
So that helps a lot, and some of the listeners might be interested in doing that, too. Just check out Weather Underground and then look for a personal weather station that's close to them. And, of course, having your own weather station isn't uh, too shabby either, but they cost a little bit more money than I'm willing to put in. So how do you track those down? Well, you put in your zip code. You go to weatherunderground.com, and you put in your zip code, and then it will come up, up with your local forecast, and will give you area forecasts or area personal weather stations. Yeah. All kinds of neat stuff there. Um, and I'm always amused because there's one guy that has his weather station is obviously in the sun because his temperature will go up way high, higher than anybody else's around for a couple of hours in the day. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that happens with my uh, remote that I got. Um, and, and that kind, kind of, when, when it's in the sun, um, it, it obviously gets to 109 or something, um, which is fine um, in the, the winter. Uh, or, sorry, in the, in the summer. But you, you know that it's uh, obviously just above uh, getting full sun there, um, which the plants need anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just, we had to extend the, um, the fence to incorporate the, the, the new vegetable garden. And, uh, so that, we still get uh, some animals in there, but not, not as many as we would have done. Do you have woodchucks? Are they a plague in your garden? Um, well, there is one, which means there's probably more than one, um, that can, tends to visit. He comes under the gate. Um, so far, we have um, something called Japanese knotweed, which oh. is... Yes. Generally known as the world's most horrendous invasive weed. Um, and he seems to quite like that. Oh, good. <laughs> They've got to be good for something. Yeah. Um, and My he seems, seems to just do the knotweed, and he's eaten the tops of the um, lettuce that had gone to seed. But he, so far, that seems to have satisfied him. Uh, maybe there's something coming in um, to drive him off in the middle of the night. I don't know. Um, I've got a night camera that I haven't set up yet to see exactly who visits at night. I got a night camera to see who was visiting in our yard because we kept hearing thumps in the middle of the night. And it turns out that one of the stray cats had figured out how to walk up the deck rail and come through a little tiny hole in the screen, which is no longer a tiny hole in the screen. And he wants in. I came home from the emergency vet a week or so ago, and there was the cat sitting right in front of the patio door staring at me wanting to come in. But I also haven't gotten my camera set up yet. But I, I do do please be careful of the woodchucks because once they are habituated to you, my, my poor sister-in-law had a woodchuck that would come up into her garden from the ponds that they had in their backyard. And that little booger, well, it turned out to be a very big guy after a while, would come through like a big old rug and mow down. She would, the peas would just be emerging and she would walk out there and the peas would be all gone. And later on the beans would be just, you know, just about ready to produce and this thing would come in and chomp them all down and and in fact the um, community garden that i that i work on um we've had to put cages pretty much over everything because it's in a rural area and although it's surrounded by a fence the the, um, the groundhog goes over the top and can get in um, and so we had um, last year when i just joined it um they were getting frustrated and so over the winter some of the master gardeners got together and they've made cages over everything to make them um, ground groundhog proof um, and, and it's a real issue uh, because you know you, 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 it's very frustrating for a gardener to 
have something and you put it down and you know and then something comes and eats it before you've got chance mm-hmm. um, yes it's very disheartening it's, it's like when I went out to pick up blueberries yesterday and discovered a whole flock of birds leaving unfortunately they didn't leave me more than one berry on all of the bushes that I had out on the side I would just I wanted to shake my fist at the sky but you know my, my yard is wildlife friendly so I have to expect that but woodchucks, I was told that woodchucks will not climb a fence that tilts back to them. And so that if you want to keep woodchucks out of your garden, you leave the top foot or so of the fence loose. You don't attach it to the post. So only the bottom of it's attached to the post, so he can't go that way. And, of course, they do burrow, so you can put part of the fence underground. But then if you leave the top of it flexible, when he goes to climb up and his body weight pulls it back, he gets discouraged and leaves. Well, that sounds good. Um, of course, he, he can still get under my gate, but, <laughs> but he, he doesn't seem to do uh, too much damage right now. Um, so, but that's something that, um, and, and I think some, the birds, I'm told that if you put little reflective tapes and things on them, they're wafted around a bit. The birds can't figure out whereabouts to, to sit to be able to catch them, to do the berries. So. Yeah, that works for about two days. And then the birds figure out that the things are not going to bother them. Um, It's the same way with, you know, people recommend stuffed owls and things like that, putting those out in the garden or scare eyes. And I have found that they don't work worth a flip. The birds are smarter than we are. (laughs) Squirrels are certainly much smarter than we are. Yeah, well, we have a red-tailed hawk now that's taking out the squirrels in our yard, and it makes me really happy. We can talk about other predators right after this break. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes. Are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes. Q-U-I-K stakes. The truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this is my last show with you guys, um, and that's why we have Daryl Paulis from Atlanta taking over, and we've been talking general gardening type things, Daryl, um, and we talked actually a little bit about um, the night camera, and I, I haven't put mine up. It's still sat on the desk next to me. Um, but one of the, I was talking to um, somebody that had one, and apparently they sat it up to see what was go, going on. And uh, they found that there was this wild cat, kind of a cougar-type thing, that, that was romping over the garden as well. Um, how they didn't notice that, I don't know, uh, because I would imagine something big cats would have um, footprints. And and big uh, scat, too, I would imagine. Yeah. So so you can get surprises, too. Now, Um, where was this cougar? I don't want to be any place around it. Yeah. (laughs) What what, what state was that in? Was that up in New Jersey? Where your friend had the cougar? I think it was. 
Um, it might have been up in the mountains, but uh, yeah. Um, Yes, I, I oh, maybe it was somebody on the Master Gardener hotline um, or somebody that came into the office with a question about something, that what was eating this, and he'd apparently put this, um, this camera up and hadn't looked at it for a few days, but he was the one that saw it. Um, and there's lots of deer around, obviously. Um, but one thing, one thing about a cougar, having a cougar around you, wouldn't it probably have to worry about the woodchucks? I imagine that the wood, that the cougar would take care of them. Um, and the cougar take down deer too, don't they? I would think they could, um, but it's very wooded here, um, so I'm not sure that they the habitat uh, they're, they're in wooded areas as much. Um, I always think of them as being um, in the open fields and things like that. But maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know. I, I have no idea about cougars. I'm fortunate I've never seen one, um, and I hope to keep it that way. Yeah. Uh, my brother lives has a home in Washington State, and his neighbor took a picture of a mountain lion on his front porch. Ooh. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather not know about that either. But they've got to live. I'm wondering what you do when you've got a <laughs> mountain lion on the front porch. Um, in, in his case, nothing. Um, just make sure that the dog doesn't go out the front and, and is always in the backyard. But they're apparently fairly fairly easy to scare. Hey, Kate, how are, you, how are your tomatoes doing up there compared to tomatoes here? Have you gotten any yet? Or are you still? It you used to be that we would aim for September tomatoes. Yeah. We, ha- we haven't got any um, that are ripe yet. Um, I've planted quite a, quite a few of them that I grew from seed. Um, and I don't think any in the garden have actually ripened yet. We've had a few peppers, um, the, the very red peppers. I think those probably came um, from purchased plants. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, I've got a couple of uh, grafted ones that I'm putting out. One is, one's a double graft that has got a cherry on one side and um, an heirloom on the other side. So that, sh- that should be fun. And that's got lots of um, foliage on it right now uh, and, and lots of flowers. The flowers took a bit of a break last week uh, when we were up in the sort of 90s or something, but I think they'll come back and there's some little, lots of tomatoes are actually starting to grow. So it's going to be another couple of weeks, I think, before any, uh, even the the little ones are, are ripened. I'll have to put. A, I'll have to have you look at the picture of the tomatoes that I put up on Facebook yesterday. I had a whole, almost an entire flat full, and it's a lot of fun. But you know, have you tried growing Sasha's Altai tomato? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Sasha's is a really early tomato, and it also produces late, and it's fairly cold tolerant, so you can get it out in the garden fairly early. And mine has been producing. I think I put. Picked my first one on June 26th, and I didn't get my tomatoes planted until really late because I was dealing with some health problems, and and I grow lots and lots of tomatoes for sale to help the church mission fund, and so I had about 400 other tomatoes that I was dealing with, tomato plants. (laughs) Uh, I love planting from seed, and tomatoes are so much fun because... You give a, when I especially like selling them to people that have never grown a tomato, but you know they'll buy a plant just to help the mission fund, and then they come back the next year and they say, "Hey, I grew a tomato and it was wonderful," and they come out back purposely to buy more tomatoes. I like that. But Sasha's Altai is a very wonderful tomato that I came across by accident. It's an heirloom from Russia. 
well, from the Altai Mountains. And it's got a really cool story behind it, the, which I will tell. And this is a tease. I know, I'm a terrible tease. I'm going to tell that story some other week so people can find out about it. But I do want to recommend that tomato to you in particular. So what, what, Friday, what was the name of it again? Sasha's Altai. Sasha is the name of a man. Uh-huh. And Altai is for the Altai Mountains. Oh. And okay. I will tell the story. It's a wonderful story that goes along with it. But I'm gonna. I'm just gonna be a tease. So, what are you? What tomatoes are you growing besides the double grafted one? Oh my! Do you remember the varieties? <laughs> are you growing some some really wonderful New Jersey tomatoes like Rutgers? Um, I believe I've got one that's a, a Rutgers graft um, with Rutgers on top, um, and I, I've got um, I've got um, some uh, little red plum tomatoes. Um, I'm growing a, a red zebra. Um, I, oh gosh, that's put me on the on the spot. I know I've got about twenty different ones out there. <laughs> Only twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this, because you know you you, you plant um, se- several, you know, so one or two of a, a container, and you really want to make sure that you get one of everything. Um, so you know, and then they all germinate because you think that maybe they won't all germinate, <laughs> and you end up with with a lot. But they are in in one uh, they're in one ten, ten by four bed, um, and there's a few. Um, a, f- a few peppers in there too. But one of the things that I was doing over the winter, knowing that I was making new beds and they were going to be raised beds, I was putting the um, the kitchen scraps and things mm-hmm. into into the bottom of the garden where where these were going to be, and then I covered them with um, compost and and manure type things. They are. I found I probably got two or three potatoes growing. I've got a couple of tomatoes growing. I even had a cabbage growing. <laughs> All from that, that, for some reason, just on that one particular area. Maybe I didn't bury them enough or something. Um, but but there's, uh, there's definitely a lot of growth that's just come from that one. It's about a three-foot square area in the raspberry bed. Um, and uh, so there, and those have also flowered. So those might be some of the, um, the earliest ones, and I have no idea what they would be. Well, if you have a chance, try. There are three tomatoes that I particularly liked when I lived in New Jersey. One, of course, was Rutgers. And I I still grow Rutgers down here periodically, though it doesn't ripen as evenly in really hot years here in Georgia. But Rutgers, Morton, and Ramapo. And Ramapo is is a, a newer variety than Rutgers. And they only, or excuse me, it's an older variety than Rutgers, but they just recently got enough um, seed so that they can start selling it again. Oh, and I think you'll nice. really like it. It's similar to to, to uh, Rutgers, but enough different that um, I think you didn't, you'd find it well worth trying. And if memory serves, Morton is a parent of the Ramapo tomato. And you know that in New Jersey, they did all that research because there were huge canning plants there. And, of course, a lot of tomatoes went over into New York City. And so Rutgers, the state university, uh, did trials and trials and trials of different varieties and and hybridized. And now a lot of them are are back available in, in cultivation again. 
Great. Now that you're and, 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 and of course our tomatoes are all late because spring was such a disaster uh, and and so late. Uh, and I think when uh, at the beginning of um, June we were something like 60 grow days behind normal. Oh my! So nobody was actually putting tomatoes in till well past Memorial Day. I mean you you just couldn't. I mean it was it was 50 degrees or 40 degrees and and 20, uh, we had a couple of we had a 27 degree night in uh, the middle of late late April. Um, so, I mean, everybody was just pulling their hair out. I mean, the, but it was great for the peas. The peas had, uh, I mean, I planted them in March. I was still harvest on July, harvesting on July 1st. Hmm. Um, which was kind of ironic because I figured they'd have petered out by then. Um, and so I put, put the beans in, um, a few, sort of towards the beginning of May. And, and the beans were now producing by July 1st too. So I had peas and beans at the same time, which is kind of different. It's different. What did you, did you do something special with them, or did you keep them separate when you were serving them? Um, well, the, um, the they, they were all in the same bed, unfortunately. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the peas were an all-season variety, um, and then I'd got bush beans that were coming up on either side. So these, these were tall tall peas in the first place. They, they were kind of vining peas to about five foot. So those were on a fence, and then the uh, the bush beans were on on either side, and. Uh, and it worked really well um, because by then the, the weather had, had improved just enough. Because I, I think um, the, the beans, they, they can enjoy cool weather as well as the hot weather. And, uh, and the peas obviously need the cooler weather. So it, it, it was really, um, it, was, it was unusual yes. for them both to overlap. Uh, and, and that was probably my most successful pea year um, in many years. I remember a few years that we had peas that would grow really late. Um, in you know, way past the, the uh, typical time that I'd rip them out, which would be maybe mid-June or thereabouts. But back when I lived up in New Jersey, and of course I lived up in the northern New Jersey area, up in Bergen County, uh, we would regularly plant out our tomatoes on Memorial Day weekend. That was the day to plant them. And I'm wondering whether, since you said that, that that's unusually late for you, um, whether climate change has changed things. Is it typical? Of course, you are in South Jersey. That makes yeah. a difference, too. Yeah. Um, well, cer- certainly it was cool, and I think one or two people were muttering about um, this climate change thing. <laughs> it, it's supposed to make us warmer, guys. Um, obviously, this was an anomaly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yes, um, in, in, you know, and that now, of course, we're, we're in the height of summer. But it, it did recover, and a lot of things have recovered, but it gave a very delayed start to the the main garden. I mean, no, nobody would have put a tomato out the first of May. Uh, it was um, it, it was just too cold. You know, talking of hot climate change, I've lived long enough now that I've recognized lots of big cycles and smaller cycles. In the 50s, we had some really, really cold years. And then it warmed up a little bit in the 60s and the 70s. And then came the 80s, and it got we had a decade that was quite cool. And then last decade, it warmed up again. So um, I'm not sure which side of the fence I'm on about that. Okay. Yeah. But but I do know from talking to people all around the earth, and I have one of thanks to the internet, I have friends on every continent except South except Antarctica, I think, and 
one of the things that everybody has noticed is that we're getting more extremes of weather, or it seems to them. And some of them are going so far as to plant nothing in the open garden. They're doing it all in high tunnels now, just because you end up with the deluges that you have, that you experienced over the last week and cooler temperatures. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's definitely an issue. Yeah. But I think part of it, part of it too, is that we are, we don't have large enough gardens to compensate for bad weather years. You know, it used to be that a garden, a typical garden, was at least a hundred by a hundred. My garden now is reduced to containers, a lot of containers, <laughs> but it's and, and one raised bed. I've got too much shade in my garden now. But so if a plant fails, to me, that's a much bigger deal than back when I had a really big garden. So I think we, we're just going to have to adapt to that. Yeah, and I, and I, I think we're, gardeners are always adapting. Um, and there's, there always has to be a contingency plan with, with towels or, or whatever if you need them. Yeah. We're going to take a little break here, but we will be right back. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. Um, Daryl and I have, have um, we've, been, we've known each other for a, a long time, Daryl, um, you being just one, one uh, I guess, town above where I, I was. Um, and I have to say, I was delighted when you said that you were going to be taking over the, being host of this show. Um, so, so why don't you tell us a little about what you're going to be doing with this show over the next, um, well, maybe five years. <laughs> I, I did it for five. <laughs> well, my very first guest is going to be Shannon Pable, and Shannon is going to tell people how to get, um, let's see, how can I phrase this? You know, in every homeowners association, there's somebody that sets themselves up and makes the rules that says, you know, no vegetable gardens and things like that. Shannon's going to tell us how to hide them. Oh, rather, rather than change the rules, you, you just right. get on with it. <laughs> well, if you can't get on the Homeowners Association board and get the rules changed, you just have to, to learn how to hide them. And one of the things that I did as a garden designer was to help people hide their vegetables in plain sight. And it, it's kind of a fun thing to do, um, both because... Um, I may be a little bit of an anarchist at heart, but also to show people that vegetable gardens don't have to be ugly. And then I'll have a, the guest that I have after that. Um, Dr. Dennis Whittle is a fantastic organic gardener. He was also a 
a school professor, a, a school principal rather, and I met him back when I was doing the kids' gardening program in his in the elementary school where he was principal. And he's he loves organic gardening, and he is not afraid to show his enthusiasm for everybody. So we're going to we're going to talk about that, and of course, as you have, I'm going to have some guests. I'm going to try to do more guests in studio because, of course, I'm I'm here in Atlanta and you weren't, um, so I can get down to the studio because I think that's a lot of fun. And I'm going to encourage people if they have a question or a topic that they would like to hear to email us here at the station, and I will be very happy to answer questions that people send in too. And, of course, they, they can put, put questions on Facebook, too. We have a Facebook page for the show. Um, and I'm sure, sure you will be interacting with people on that, too. And I have to say, over the last five years, I mean, I have just been blessed with so many great guests. Um, if, you weren't, if folks weren't able to um, catch them all, I mean, there was an Olympic swimmer, Natalie Kaufman, that we had on. Um, she was in the Olympics uh, the last time, um, I think in the relay, but she's won several gold, gold medals. I just heard through the grapevine that she also had chicken. So we did a whole show with how she planned um, her garden, knowing that the Olympics were coming up and how, how she was training and how, how she was, who was looking after it when she was over in Seoul. Um, so that, that was kind of fun. But we've also had, you know, as, as you mentioned, your, your school principal. Um, I, I had a, a he was a, a science teacher in an elementary school. He just loved growing vegetables, and I have no idea how I found him. But they, they just make great, uh, great uh, shows and entertainment. Um, and of course, there's lots of authors that, that we've ha- had on, everything from backyards and front yards and containers and um, different ways of grow- growing. Rooftop gardens was a fun one, too. Um, so it, it's uh, it, it's been great, great the variety of things, and and you know I, I wish you all the luck. Yes, getting a variety because it is it's great fun, and I have been uh, I was honoured with with so many people. You know, you just send out an email and they say, sure, I'll be, I'll be on the show. Um, and that's um, one advantage of being a garden writer. We know people, and that yeah. helps. Yeah. And and people that have a new book are very enthusiastic about it. And that brings me to what are you going to be doing now that you're retiring from America's Homegrown Veggie Show? Well, I do have a couple of projects in the works um, which have kept me very busy. One is which um, I'm going to be do- doing a book which should come out in um, 2016 if all goes well. And that will, of course, be veggie-oriented. Um, and I'm... Do- putting together a couple of um, there's a couple of uh, TV shows one has been accepted by PBS so we're trying to get sponsorship for that one um, so all these things, things are, are going around New, New Jersey has been absolutely great to me I have met so many contacts uh, what well, shall I say I've fallen over contacts um, and, and everything seems, seems to be that it, and it was t- time to have fresh blood I think on the show um, you can only do things for so long before you feel like you're repeating things and so you know I, I think it was time for me to go but you know America's homegrown um, the, the show there the, the, with David was um, I mean it was it, it started um, I know exactly where it started I was talk, talking to Kate Chura who was at the, at the time the president of the um, Southern South, Southern Garden no, the, the Southern Horticultural Society, uh, which was a fairly new entity at the time, and we were talking on one side of the table. With this, this was the Master Gardener Hour, and David pipes up. 
are you girls too old to remember Victory Gardens? And we looked at each other and we said, probably, but we know what they are. And he said, we need a show on veggies. And so I went up to him after the show um, and I said, I'll hold that for a couple of weeks until you can find somebody. Um, and five years later, three states later, um, we finally found somebody to take it over. But I'm not sure if David, remem David remembers how it started. And officially, he was co-host. I didn't know that. I remember that I was one of your early guests. Um, but I do know, I do understand how you mean about you know, needing to move on after a while. I did a show on WMLB radio for almost 10 years. And when the station was sold and the format changed, I wasn't sure whether I was unhappy with that or not. Because it was kind of a relief not to be doing it. But I still, I still love it because I want people to garden. I want people to be successful in their garden. I want people to have fun in their garden. I don't want people to, you know, have to worry about all the rules. Because, as you know, you can break rules really well. You've probably broken as many as I have. Oh, yes. So um, now tell me about this PBS show. What's it going to be on? Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, that, that was how this thing all started. Um, but uh, let me see, what rules do I break? Um, the spacing rule, you know. Okay, it's supposed to be six, six inches or eight inches or 12 inches apart. <laughs> I, I start out with that and then I have too, too many maybe potato tubers and I kind of put them in so they end up about three or four inches instead of um, a foot apart. Um, so is, is there ever a gardener that doesn't do that? Or, or if you've raised, as you mentioned, a lot of tomato plants because you planted extra seed and you don't want them to go to waste, you can't just throw them out. You have to plant them or give them yeah. away. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so easy when, when you're growing them from seed. And, you, you know, you, you don't want to just take the strongest one. You want them all to grow. <laughs> yeah. Which means you have to find somewhere for them. And that plan that you made in on that snowy January morning, uh, looking out onto the garden, you know, where you've got X number of everything in there and little plots for everything. Um, come, come March, that, that's toast. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I certainly understand that. As a matter of fact, I even gave up. I used to be, I used to, when the first computer programs came out that helped you calculate how big your vegetable garden needed to be and how many rows of this and that that you needed to plant, I thought that was the best thing since sliced bread. Um, now, I just look at a space and I have a plant in my one hand and a shovel in the other and I say, where the heck am I going to put this? And that's how I, that's how I space my plants now. Yes, and, and th things like mulberries, um, you know, those, those have to go into the main part of the garden because there's just nothing. Uh, there's nothing in the raised beds that would be big enough for that. Um, and, but the deer like them, so they have to be inside the, the fence. So I've got a couple of mulberries, and one's got a flower on it. And I, w I was out doing a, um, a shoot the other day in Princeton, and this lady had made, um, she got a big mulberry bush, and she makes a syrup out of the mulberry flower and then uses that syrup in a lemonade. Hmm. So and and that was lovely. It gave, gave that extra tone to it. So it was a mulberry lemonade. Very nice. I, I wouldn't have considered that. I know people that make elderflower syrups and use them for various things, but I, I'd never heard about mulberries. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and and they've got the white flower, and some people make fritters out of that. But and then of course it gets gets the berries if you leave leave some, and uh, the berries make great wine or jelly. 
a, a really nice plant, and it's a big plant too. Um, it's not not something delicate that you can pop in the front garden but, or or in a container. But, but they are uh, they're, they're fabulous plants. I, they are fabulous plants. I like the way they look. I have a contorted mulberry, which unfortunately, apparently, as a male, it doesn't fruit, though it flowers. Um, or maybe it just needs a mate. Um, and I, it was just another $250 this year, this week, again, to have it cut back off the house. Because it didn't read the book that said it wasn't supposed to be 25 feet tall and wide. So and watch out for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, the plants don't read the books, and we do. And um, sometimes it causes us to do silly things. Yes, and, and it, it's always a benefit to read that read that little taggy, assuming it's not from a box, box store, which means the taggy is probably wrong. Um, but, but if you've got, got the little ta- taggy, um, it, absolutely you have to read that height and width thing, um, particularly if they're perennial or, or biennial plants. Like uh, I think my, mine was an angelica, which kept very, very small the first year, and the second year really grew quite big, and you couldn't could barely get to the back door. Um, I, I have this romantic idea of the, you know, the back, back door um, herb garden, and I stuck angelica in there. Um, angelica gets big. <laughs> I, I've never grown angelica. Now, doesn't angelica give you a rash when you touch it? I thought mm. I, I, I thought I had heard of a number of people that that if you touch the plant and uh, go out in the sun, you will get a rash. I haven't heard of that with angelica. I know rue you can. Oh yes. Uh, if you if you get the um, the juice from the if you sort of trim rue and get that juice on you, that can give you a really nasty sun rash. I rue the day that I planted rue. Yes. Um, and well, I planted it because it was supposed to repel fire ants. They built their nest right on top of it. They didn't care. So it's another thing where they didn't read the book. Ah. <laughs> yeah, um, but and we do not. We are not warm enough up here for fire ants. I don't think. I've never seen a fire ant up here. Um, we have a lot of other nasties, but fire ants are not one of them. And uh, that, that's some, something that I do not miss from the south. Now, I had a fire ant crawl up my pants leg yesterday while I was picking tomatoes, and I was not very pleased because, of course, since it crawled up my pants leg, um, it had to bite all the way down, too. <laughs> I was getting, oh, trying to get rid of it. <laughs> so, Kate, tell me about your PBS show. I, I assume it's going to be on vegetables, or are you going to be doing other plants, to, other kinds of plants, too? Well, I did hear the one thing about this, um, this radio show is that... Um, People think that I only do vegetables, so everybody keeps offering me these things in vegetables. Um, so, so, yes, it's going to be um, it's, it's going to be on growing veggies, and uh, and then we're going to take them into the kitchen and and cook them. So, uh, and we're going to cook them in a gluten-free because I'm celiac. So we're going to cook them in a gluten-free kitchen, and we're going to do things like blueberry muffins gluten-free and uh, strawberry flans gluten-free, um, using all those good things that are in the garden. And, and how do you tell when a carrot's ready? Um, you know, you could stick your finger down down and see if it's see if it's in. But you know, how do you really tell when a carrot is ready, or or a potato? Um, you know, so we're going to cover all that type of thing. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so we just need, we just need the funding for it because PBS want the show, but they're not going to fund the sh- the, uh, the, sh- the filming of it. So that, that I'm doing the fundraising part right now. Well, did you know that King Arthur Flower just came out with a line of gluten free mixes? Now, who was that? King Arthur Flour Company. Oh, yes, yes. They have gluten, gluten-free breads, and I noticed the catalog that came in yesterday has gluten-free mixes where you add your own blueberries to it. 
But that sounds like a fun thing to do. And uh, it looks like we are about having to wrap up here for the week. And I I really hope that you have a wonderful second chapter of your life doing the the PBS and and the book. And when this book gets off the ground, maybe I can come back and be a proper guest. I would be absolutely happy to have you do that. And I will absolutely look forward to it, too. Okay. And, and good, good luck with the show, Daryl. I mean, I, I think you're going to be a wonderful sh- uh, host. And thank you, Dave, David, and the station for putting up with me for the last few years. I've really had a ball with it. <laughs> thank you, Kate. Um, I, I really appreciate the, the chance to come back to do radio. I love radio. I've been doing it off and on since I was 17, and we're going to have a really good time. Okay. And that's it for this week, and, and so we'll say goodbye, but I will be here next week with Shannon Pavel, a special guest, to tell you all about growing veggies in your landscape. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.